Chapter Twenty Two of Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Blakely. Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England by Charles H. Firth. Chapter Twenty Two. Cromwell and his family. Mister Lilly said, Cromwell to the painter. I desire you to use all your skill to paint my picture truly like me, and not flatter me at all, but remark all these roughnesses, pimples, warts, and everything, otherwise I never will pay a farthing for it. Doubtless the protector would have given a similar charge to his biographers, but their task is more difficult. Much contemporary evidence is merely worthless gossip, much is vitiated by party spirit, and on many points the authorities are silent john maidstone the steward of cromwell's household supplies us with what he terms a character of his person his body was well compact and strong his stature under six foot i believe about two inches his head so shaped as you might see it a storehouse and a shop both of a vast treasury of natural parts his temper exceeding fiery as i have known but the flame of it kept down for the most part or soon allayed with those moral endowments he had he was naturally compassionate towards objects in distress even to an effeminate measure, though God had made him at heart, wherein was left room for fear, but what was due to himself, of which there was a large proportion, yet did he exceed in tenderness towards sufferers. A larger soul, I think, hath seldom dwelt in house of clay than his was. I believe if his story were impartially transmitted, and the unprejudiced world well possessed with it, she would add him to her nine worthies. The numerous portraits of Cromwell helped to complete Maidstone's description. Like most Puritan gentlemen, he wore his hair long. The thick, light brown locks, which began to grow gray before he became protector, covered his collar and almost reached his shoulders. His eyes, according to Cooper's and Walker's portraits, were blue or gray, and his eyebrows strongly marked. His nose was long, thick, and slightly arched, with full nostrils, the beak of a vulture, and royalist pamphleteers and even political friends jested about its size. If you prove false, said the downright Haslerig to Cromwell, I will never trust a fellow with a big nose again. The mouth was large, firm, and full-lipped. Strength, not grace, marked both face and figure. But the rough-hewn features have an air of kindness and sagacity, mingled with the resolution and energy, which are their most marked characteristics. In some portraits there is an air of melancholy. The dignity of the protector's outward bearing was admitted even by opponents. When he appeared first in Parliament, writes Clarendon, he seemed to have a person in no degree gracious, no ornament of discourse, none of those talents which used to reconcile the affections of the standers-by. Yet, as he grew into place and authority, his parts seemed to be renewed, as if he had concealed faculties till he had occasion to use them. And when he was to act the part of a great man, he did it without any indecency through the want of custom. To another royalist, Sir Philip Warwick, he appeared of great and majestic deportment and comely presence, and he made a similar impression on foreign observers. When the protector gave audience to ambassadors or received official deputations, an elaborate ceremonial of quasi-regal character was strictly observed. Sir Oliver Fleming, who had been one of the continental agents of Charles I, and was skilled in all the niceties of diplomatic etiquette, acted as Cromwell's master of the ceremonies. But the protector transacted much important business in less formal interviews with the representatives of foreign states. He was easily accessible to his subjects in general, and petitioners found no great difficulty in putting their grievances before him. Opponents of his policy were allowed opportunity to set forth their objections, and he argued with them freely in reply. 
even religious enthusiasts contrive to deliver their messages from the Lord, or, like Fox, to explain what their religious views really were. About three times a month the protector took part in the proceedings of the Council of State, but most of his political or administrative work was transacted with small committees or with Secretary Thurlow alone. With these trusted counselors he freely unbent. He would sometimes be very cheerful with us, says Whitelock, and laying aside his greatness, he would be exceeding familiar with us, and by way of diversion would make verses with us, and every one must try his fancy. He commonly called for tobacco, pipes, and a candle, and would now and then take tobacco himself. Then he would fall again to his serious and great business. Whitelock also gives some account of the protector's recreations. Cromwell retained throughout his life the tastes of a country gentleman. At Hampton Court he often amused himself with bulls, but his favorite sports were hunting and hawking. As he rode from Worcester to London, after his victory in 1651, he diverted himself on the way with hawking, and he sometimes practiced the same sport on Hounslow Heath after he was protector. When he entertained the Swedish ambassador at Hampton Court in 1654, after dinner was over the protector, the ambassador, and the rest of the company, Corston killed a fat buck in the park. Cromwell was a bold jumper, and it was noticed that the ambassador would not adventure to leap ditches after the protector, but was more wary. Good horses of every kind were always Cromwell's delight. English diplomatic agents in the Levant were employed to procure Arabs and Barbs for his riding, or for breeding purposes. Six gallant Flanders mares, reddish-gray, had drawn the general's coach when he set out for the reconquest of Ireland, and six white horses drew the protector's coach when it conveyed the Spanish ambassador to his place of embarkation. Of these white horses it was said that they were a finer team than any king of England had ever possessed. Another team of six horses, presented by the Count of Oldenburg in 1654, ran away in Hyde Park when the protector himself was driving them. Cromwell, who was flung off the box upon the pole, got entangled in the harness, and was dragged for some distance by one foot, but he escaped in the end with nothing more than a few bruises. Andrew Marvel and George Wither both published poems celebrating the protector's deliverance, and the incident furnished several royalist wits with a theme for satires and epigrams. Another recreation which found great favor with Cromwell was music. When he gave a banquet to foreign ambassadors or members of the House of Commons, Rare music, both of instruments and voices, was always an important part of the entertainment. The same thing took place in hours of relaxation or domestic festivities, for the protector, according to a contemporary biographer, was a great lover of music and entertained the most skillful in that science in his pay and family. In the great hall at Hampton Court, he had two organs, and his organist, John Hingston, was a pupil of Orlando Gibbons. James Quinn, a student of Christ Church, Oxford, who had been deprived of his place by the Puritan visitors of that university, obtained his restoration to it through the productor's love of music. Quinn was not a very skillful singer, but he had a bass voice, very strong and exceeding trolling. Some of his friends brought him into the company of the protector, who loved a good voice and instrumental music well. Cromwell heard him sing with very great delight, liquored him with sack, and in conclusion said, Mr. Quinn, you have done well, what shall I do for you? To which Quinn made answer, with great compliments, that his highness would be pleased to restore him to his student's place, which he did accordingly. A few other notices of the protector's personal habits may be gleaned from contemporary sources. In his diet his tastes were very simple. According to a contemporary pamphleteer, it was spare and not curious, 
no french calcachoses were to be found on his table but plain substantial dishes his ordinary drink according to the same authority consisted of a very small ale known by the name of morning dew he also drank freely a light wine which his physicians had recommended to him as good for his health in dress cromwell's tastes were marked by the same simplicity when he expelled the long parliament in sixteen fifty three he was wearing plain black clothes with grey worsted stockings at his installation in the following december he had on a plain black suit and cloak though a few weeks later when he was entertained by the lord mayor he wore a musk-coloured suit and coat richly embroidered with gold when protector his dress was naturally more sumptuous than it had been before and sir philip warwick who had so contemptuously criticised the cut of his clothes in sixteen forty attributed the improvement in his appearance to a better tailor as well as to converse with better company but even then a young royalist fresh from the french court described the protector as plain in his apparel and rather affecting a negligence than a genteel garb the protector's household was naturally organized on a more magnificent scale than that which had sufficed him as general the sum allowed for its maintenance was sixty thousand pounds during the first protectorate and a hundred thousand pounds during the second but many other expenses were defrayed from this fund and cromwell spent a large amount in charity according to one biographer as much as forty thousand pounds a year speaking of the protector's second installation and the increased state which was its consequence sir philip warwick says now he models his household so that it might have some resemblance to a court and his liveries lackeys and yeomen of the guard are known whom they belong to by their habit the forty or fifty gentlemen employed in the internal service of whitehall and hampton court or in attendance upon the protector's person wore coats of grey cloth with black velvet collars and black velvet or silver lace trimming and besides these yeomen of the guard he had the life-guard of horse which has been mentioned before all this show and state offended many rigid puritans to whom even the semblance of a court was hateful others held that it was necessary for the honour of the english nation that its head should be surrounded by a certain amount of pomp and this opinion was generally accepted both newspapers and private letters make frequent mention of the protector's family when cromwell took up his residence at whitehall in april sixteen fifty four his aged mother removed with him but she took no pleasure in her son's grandeur and it was said that she very much mistrusted the issue of affairs and would be often afraid when she heard a musket that her son was shot being exceedingly dissatisfied unless she might see him once a day at least she died in november sixteen fifty four in her ninety-fourth year and a little before her death gave her blessing to her son in words which show how fully she sympathized with the aims of his life the lord cause his face to shine upon you and comfort you in all your adversities and enable you to do great things for the glory of the most high god and to be a relief unto his people my dear son i leave my heart with thee good night of the protector's wife her highness the protectress as she was officially styled little mention is ever made there is no doubt some foundation for the account of her methodical and economical management of the protector's household which is contained in a contemporary pamphlet but the main object of the pamphleteer was to sneer at her sordid frugality and unfitness for the station in which fortune had placed her mrs hutchinson while owning that cromwell had much natural greatness and well became the place he had usurped describes his wife and children as setting up for principality which suited them no better than fine clothes do an ape 
the protector's daughters according to her were insolent fools with one exception the exception was bridget the eldest who after the death of her first husband ireton became the wife of lieutenant-general fleetwood she alone was humbled and not exalted with these things elizabeth claypool the protector's second and favorite daughter was in her father's opinion in danger of being cozened with worldly vanities and worldly company while some of the sharp sayings attributed to her account for mrs hutchinson's severe judgment on the other hand we have the evidence of james harrington the author of oceana that she acted the part of a princess very naturally obliging all persons with her civility and frequently interceding for the unhappy harrington owed to her the restoration of the confiscated manuscript of oceana and she often interceded with her father on behalf of imprisoned royalists perhaps it was owing to this that when the bodies of the protector and admiral blake and many other great parliamentarians were exhumed from their graves in westminster abbey hers was left undisturbed and lies there still mary the third daughter who was born in sixteen thirty seven married thomas bellasyce lord falconberg in november sixteen fifty seven while francis the youngest became in the same month the wife of robert rich grandson of the earl of warwick both weddings were celebrated by festivities which scandalized some puritans the wedding feast of francis was kept at whitehall when says a newsletter they had forty-eight violins and much mirth with frolics besides mixed dancing a thing heretofore accounted profane till five of the clock yesterday morning that of mary cromwell was at hampton court and songs for the occasion were composed by andrew marvel in which the bride was introduced as cynthia falconberg as endymion and the protector himself as jove both these two ladies lived to see the revolution mary dying in seventeen twelve and francis in seventeen twenty one lady falconberg was childless and mrs claypole's children died unmarried but after the death of robert rich francis cromwell married sir john russell of chippenham and from her or her sister bridget many existing families can trace their descent the protector's son fared little better at mrs hutchinson's hands than his daughters according to her henry cromwell and his brother-in-law claypole were two debauched ungodly cavaliers while richard though gentle and virtuous was yet a peasant in his nature and became not greatness richard's education had not fitted him for greatness cromwell until his second protectorate at least never contemplated being succeeded in power by one of his sons he objected on principle to hereditary governments and declared in sixteen fifty five that if parliament had offered to make the government hereditary in his family he would have rejected it rulers should be chosen for the love of god to truth and to justice not for their birth for as it is in the ecclesiastes who knoweth whether he may beget a fool or a wise man cromwell therefore made at first no attempt to advance either of his sons for six or seven years after his marriage richard lived on his property in hampshire devoting himself to hunting and other amusements his father's complaints show that he was idle and into debt neglected the management of his estate and made pleasure the business of his life in november sixteen fifty five however the protector appointed him one of the council of trade in order no doubt to give him some training in public business in sixteen fifty seven after the protector's second installation a further change took place richard was suddenly brought to the front he succeeded his father as chancellor of the university of oxford and was made a member of the protector's council and was given the command of a regiment horse when he travelled about the country he was received by the local authorities as if he were the destined heir of his father's authority 
it was a poor training for a future ruler and after he became protector richard was heard to complain that he had thought to have lived as a country gentleman and that his father had not employed him in such a way as to prepare him for such employment which he thought he did designedly yet though richard showed no political ability during his brief reign he was far from being the country clown which royalist satires represented him in his public appearances he displayed a dignity of bearing which surprised even his friends and an oratorical power which they had never suspected after the restoration the debts which he had contracted as protector and the jealous suspicion with which the government of charles ii always regarded him obliged him to live many years in exile i have been alone thirty years he wrote to his daughter in sixteen ninety banished and under silence and my strength and safety is to be retired quiet and silent after his return to england which took place about sixteen eighty he thought it safer to adopt a feigned name and lived in complete retirement he died in seventeen twelve leaving three daughters and his eldest son who died in seventeen o five left no issue henry cromwell though a man of much greater natural capacity than his brother was also for a time kept back by his father from sixteen fifty to about sixteen fifty three he was colonel of a regiment of horse in ireland and was reputed to be a good officer in august sixteen fifty four the protector's council nominated him to command the forces in ireland but the protector was reluctant to allow his son to take the post and kept him a year longer in england the lord knows wrote cromwell to fleetwood my desire was for him and his brother to have lived private lives in the country and harry knows this well and how difficultly i was persuaded to give him his commission as commander-in-chief and a member of the irish council henry proved his ability and in november sixteen fifty seven he succeeded his brother-in-law fleetwood as lord deputy of ireland his task like his father's task in england was to establish civil government in a place of military rule and to unite all protestant sects in support of the protectorate he had many difficulties to contend with both political and financial the anabaptists and a faction amongst the officers gave continual trouble the land settlement was but half completed prosperity was slow to return and order hard to re-establish yet he was more successful than could have been expected and with the majority of the protestant colony in ireland he gained great popularity rigid puritans held that his way of living and his ostentation in dress savoured too much of the world but in other respects his conduct was blameless his chief defect was an infirmity of temper he was very sensitive to criticism and very impatient of opposition insomuch that his father warned him against making it a business to be too hard for his opponents it is sometimes said that if the protector had made henry his successor instead of richard the protectorate might have lasted but the choice of cromwell was dictated by the circumstances in which he was placed among his counsellors and generals there was no man whom the rest would willingly have accepted as the ruler and of his sons richard was far more acceptable to the chief supporters of the protectorate than his abler and more masterful brother would have been the military cabal which overthrew richard would have proved too strong for henry to whom moreover some of its leaders were personally hostile a month after the fall of his brother henry cromwell resigned the government of ireland and rejecting all the overtures of the royalists acquiesced in the re-establishment of the republic he declared that he had formerly had an honourable opinion of the republic but was satisfied also of the lawfulness of the late government under a single person and whereas my father 
whom i hope you yet look upon as no inconsiderable instrument of these nations freedom and happiness and since him my brother were constituted chief in those administrations and the returning to another form hath been looked upon as an indignity to these my nearest relations i cannot but acknowledge my own weakness to the sudden digesting thereof and my own unfitness to serve you and as i cannot promote anything which infers the diminution of my late father's honour and merit so i thank the lord he hath kept me safe in the great temptation wherewith i have been assaulted to withdraw my affection from that cause wherein he lived and died at the restoration henry thanks to his friends amongst the royalists and to the moderation with which he had used his power was not molested though he lost a portion of his estates by the change he lived in retirement on his property in cambridgeshire dying there in sixteen seventy four henry's great-grandson oliver cromwell of cheshunt who died in eighteen twenty one was the last descendant of the protector in the male line End of chapter twenty two recording by beth blakely